Howdy, friends, and welcome to a very special edition of The George Sanders Show. Not only has Sean busted out the Peanuts Holidays glass, which he's warned me not to break or his wife will kill me, mm-hmm. we are also doing the first of two year-end specials this week. We're not going to talk about new movies from 2013, and in fact, the second part of our year-end review shows will be uh, talking about 1933 <laughs> instead of 2013. But this, this go-around, we're going to be discussing... Um, Films that Sean and I discovered this year for the first time and fell in love with and forced one another to watch. We'll also be counting down our top five films in that vein um, and discussing new music that came out this year. Um, You heard some in the beginning of the show, Sean. What was that? That was one of your picks. Yeah, that was uh, from uh, uh, violinist Hilary Hahn's new album uh, in 27 pieces in which she she commissioned 27 different composers to write her short pieces of music and then put them all on the album and that was uh, memory games uh, composed by Abner Dorman I read about that uh, in uh, New Yorker Alex Ross wrote about her that commission and stuff and it sounds like an interesting idea you know she's using her clout to to do interesting things I think that's pretty cool yeah that's you know that's the cool one of the many cool things about Hilary Hahn is that she's this you know celebrated child prodigy and, and classical you know performer. But instead of just putting out endless retreads of the the famous repertory, she's you know constantly seeking out new things and new ways of putting together classical records. Yeah, so she's great. You also think she's hot. She's very pretty. <laughs> well, uh... but let's not be lascivious. <laughs> Speaking of lascivious, let's talk about uh, one of the films that I watched for the first time this year and really loved and made you watch. That is the uh, 2006 film Crank, directed by Mark Nebeldine and Brian Taylor. And now we're going to listen to a song that you have picked. Yeah, so instead of clips this week, we're going to be doing this music thing. And so um, we will be doing an intro and an outro to to the film with some music. So this is my first pick for great music from 2013. This is a... Ghostface Killer, and I'm kind of cheating here because it's called Sure Shot Part 1 and 2. Tossing the ocean, popping to their brain holes. I'm on rules, blood on my apron. Hawk time up while they try to escape and peep the visual. Tied them up in the visual. Took their clothes off, season them like searches. Let the pits out to eat them, that's the remedy. Attack, kill, bite off their extremity. Blood bath, splash my name on the wall. Call a piece of delivery, leave a tip on the store. With an arm, leg, head, I'm coming for you all. Sure shot. Yo, yeah, heart of a lion, king of the jungle. I'm a humble killer bee. You as soft as a bumble. I don't crumble. I strike back hard with a vengeance. Attack through these killer words. I spit in the sands. I'm a menace. The black card can't cape crusader. The face of a ghost. I disappear in the vapors. You can murder my flesh and bone. Souls invincible. Revenge my death. Payback's the main principle. Protect your neck when you move. I'll be lurking in the shadows. Starks against the nigga. I never lose battles. Pimp bitch with a superhero logo on my chest. Big Gucci link. GFK on the crest. Icy arm for the eagle with the eight carat ruby eyes. On your motherfucking lawn while I'm stupid high. All black down, royalty purple, and some ice chips. Two black bangs pointed at you in a height flip. Yo, yo, now I'm alone in the room and I just stare at the wall.
All right, our thanks to Ghostface, uh, Mr. Killa. <laughs> GFK. So, like I said, Crank came out in 2006. It stars Jason Statham as a hitman who wakes up one morning and finds that he has been poisoned, and the only way to counteract the poison, to keep him alive long enough to enact his revenge, is for him to keep his adrenaline pumping, which leads him through all kinds of wacky adventures in uh, a very kind of... Uh, of over-the-top, grotesque, comic book, Looney Tunes-style action movie that directors Neveldine and Taylor pretty much throw everything, including the kitchen sink, on the screen. And it is, uh, it's wild, and I really loved it. I, uh, it's one of the, uh, the favorite movies of the uh, so-called tourism movement, which was controversial early in this year, but thankfully the uh, controversy has kind of died away. So I was looking forward to your reaction to it, <laughs> but you did not like it. I did not like it. The word I'm going to latch onto from your intro there is grotesque. Um, I, I wanted to like Crank. Like in my mind, prior to seeing it, I was like, "Yeah, this could really work." Like it's it's going to be batshit insane. There's going to be crazy action sequences, um, and it's just going to be a whole lot of fun. And unfortunately for me. It's not really that crazy. I found a lot of it to be kind of predictable, actually, and we can get into more specifics in a minute. And it really wasn't very fun. Like, I, I, I did not experience any sense of joy watching Crank. Um, and I can get behind, you know, crazy, wacky antics and stuff. And, and, you know, you mentioned Looney Tunes. Oh, my gosh, that stuff's great. But this movie's just ugly. It's... It, in both its execution and its subject matter, and it, it and here's the biggest slight against this movie I can say: I fell asleep watching Crank. <laughs> I I don't know what to say to that. But it's <laughs> it's completely the opposite of my my experience of the film. Like I. Uh, I start I started watching a lot of these these uh, kind of vulgar tourism movies. Uh, as soon as my son was born, in, in, in <laughs> you needed March. a injection I, of testosterone. I needed something to to keep me awake uh-huh. as I'm, you know, staying up in the middle of the night with a you know a newborn baby, and so watching like the Neville Dean and Taylor movies, or like the the Universal Soldier movies, or the uh, Paul W S Anderson films, which were you know. They're all a lot of fun. They're all really exciting. They all keep my attention and would help keep me awake at, at four o'clock in the morning when I really just wanted to sleep. Mm-hmm. And and Crank was was my favorite of all of these movies that I watched. And it it is for me at least. I I saw the the joy in it. It seemed like so much fun. Like they're just you know coming up with any kind of crazy thing that they could think of either visually or story-wise, in order to just, you know, keep it going from one thing to the next. Yeah, I I just don't think... It, and I don't want to put this side-by-side side with The Victim, which we'll be talking about later in the show, but yeah. that's a movie that throws everything in the kitchen sink into it. I mean, literally, <laughs> we will talk about some of the batshit crazy stuff that comes out of that movie that, for me, just sends me into fits of joy. And watching this, it's like, you know, there's the scene where he goes to pick up his girlfriend from the apartment, and um, he 
he has to stick his hand in the waffle iron to keep himself, <laughs> um, you know, his heart pumping, you know, so that he doesn't die. It's, it, basically, you know, the, the pithy way of saying, describing the movie is that it's like speed, but the bus is his heart or whatever. So you got to keep moving. Yeah. Um, and so he sticks his hand into the, <laughs> this waffle iron. And I, that, to me, that scene was just like, that's just stupid. It's not inventive. It's not. It's not interesting. It's not funny. It's yeah, that's just, the. It's the least inventive thing in that scene. But the scene opens with a, a shot of her from the microwave's point of view, and the whole time he's trying to get her out of the house because assassins are coming to kill her. I I will give you that. I do like that. Is probably my favorite part of the movie is where he's trying to hide the hitman element from yeah. his girlfriend. I, but that doesn't it doesn't last long enough. It's tantalizing and I think that's really interesting. But then as soon as he takes those two guys out, then he tells her what's going on and it, then it kind of loses its momentum. Well, it it takes a while before before she actually believes him. Yeah. But like the, their interactions in in that apartment are so cute where <laughs> I don't know if they're cute, John. They're cute. <laughs> where he's like, you know, She's just being like this really sweet girl who just doesn't believe him at all, and he's like wearing this this tracksuit, and apparently he's uh, told her that he's a video game programmer. It's great. Well, I would like to talk about video games too in a second here, but uh, but when I talk about the film being predictable or something, as soon as the girl enters the picture, you know, my mind goes, okay, there's going to be a scene where he needs to have sex with her to keep his heart going. Right, and of course they will do that on the street in Chinatown in front of a busload of of girl tourists. You know, it... it, Obviously. It didn't work for me. I'm sorry. (laughs) I... How about about, uh, the fact that when they do have sex, they don't finish? He just gets a phone call, takes the phone call, and then goes off and does something else. What, how about that? What do, you, what do you mean? Did you predict that? Well, I'm not saying I'm not saying I'm not saying I predicted every plot element or you know every every you know way each thing happened, but it was like, okay, they're gonna need, he's gonna need to you know inject himself with tons of drugs. He's gonna need to have sex with his girlfriend. He's okay. gonna need to you know all those things. And it's just like I don't you know I just kind of, it was kind of tedious. And and another thing is is that I don't think there's any movie that can sustain the premise of this movie and so like you can't have a consistent you know 90 minutes of, of adrenaline because you I think that's what happened to me is you know after 20 minutes of it you kind of need you know to be brought down a little bit so that you can you know be ramped back up again but in this movie it's like we have to constantly be doing something crazier and yeah, I just I, was, got bored with that I thought I thought you know the the scenes with with uh, with Amy Smart as as a girlfriend were kind of a nice balance to that. And they were some some quieter moments. There's like, like when she's filleting him in a car. <laughs> that was when a they're, quiet like, moment. When they're, when they're when they're when they're talking and he's like, you know, I was going to give up the hitman life for you, and and she's like, oh, and then she filleted him in the car. This movie starts with the credit sequence um, is a pixelated like, 8-bit video game style, like, very neon. And then the movie ends after the credits with um, an 8-bit version of the, the movie's events taking place where, where Jason Statham's character is walking through a street just beating people up or whatever. Um, and you mentioned video games a second ago. Um, and I'm not a video game player, um, but this reminds me of what 
I think those Grand Theft Auto games are like, where you just kind of go around doing, you know, evil nihilistic things just to kind of get your rocks off or whatever. And that doesn't appeal to me at all. Well, he's not really... It's, I don't think it's a... I'm saying for the viewer, it's, yeah. it's no, watching I don't it, think it's like, a particularly nihilistic film. It's kind of crazy. The second film, Crank 2, High Voltage... <laughs> uh, Which I will not be watching. Is, is much darker, and, and I would say definitely nihilistic. And it's also more video game-like, and it's also much uglier to look at. Like, I, I love the, uh, the kind of candy-colored Los Angeles that they show. With, See, I didn't, I didn't with catch the, it. the really bright yellows and everything is sunny and I I thought it was more of a, a, a vulgar brown. Uh, maybe the settings blur. on your TV are wrong. But the settings on my TV are awesome. The the second film is is much uh, kind of gray brownish gray in in tone, whereas this is more sun dappled Los Angeles. I'm just picturing. I mean, there's there's him in a black bathroom. Black walls, black floors, sniffing cocaine off the ground. It's not very colorful. No. I'm picturing him in a in a you know cheap diner that's very brown. I'm picturing driving through the streets of L.A. and uh, on in a, a smog-filled haze of brown. <laughs> on a motorcycle, wearing a hospital gown, standing up and flying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, there were a couple of minor characters that appeared in here that I I, I did enjoy. I I, I like Dwight Yoakam um, as this like sleazy, you know, um, opportunistic his, his, his doctor, doctor guy. Um, and it was great to also see um, Francis Capra, who we all know from uh, Veronica Mars, yep, played, uh, played the character Weevil. Yeah, Frank Capra's uh, grandson. Grandson. There you go. Um, and I, I, I did like to, you know, tease out the alternate reality of this is what happened to Weevil, is that he became some sort of crime boss or, like, you know, somewhere on the, the chain of crime bosses. Um, so that was kind of nice. But um, I, And also, Jason Statham, you know, I think this is another problem with the movie. To me, he's kind of... He doesn't have any sort of likability. Like, they're, they're, they're like you know, with, with, like, Bruce Willis or something in a Die Hard or something... You know, he's got charisma, he's got, you know, charm and, you know, whatever, you know, that comes through all the, the things that happen. And Jason Statham's character is just kind of this brute that... He had, like, a, an exasperated quality that I thought was really uh, charming. <laughs> okay. All right. I thought, I thought he was great. I thought he was really funny. So... Wait, let me ask you this. Where in the line of the vulgar, you know, autism films did, did you watch this? Was it at the beginning? Uh, yeah, this was one of the first ones, okay. I think. Uh, I think I, I'd started with, like, the Resident Evils before that. What did you think about uh, the way they film it? Because they have a unique filming style where, where, both of them, <laughs> where both of them will have, like, a handheld camera, uh -huh. and they'll just kind of follow the action around, and then they'll cut it all together later. Yeah. You hated it. I hated it. I didn't like it at all. It, it was... There was no rhyme or reason to it. It was just... I don't know. It was it was kind of schizophrenic and and kind of ADD addled, um, just a hodgepodge of of buffoonery that I just I don't I just couldn't. I, they they try and do cool things. There's like a shot outside the cars, the cars driving, you know, like hanging out the window and stuff, and um, it it just seemed like 
they're trying they're trying to like whip you into a frenzy so that you don't notice how kind of mediocre and amateurish the whole thing is. Okay, well let me let me try one one last time to uh, <laughs> to convince you of your wrongness. Okay. Uh, uh, there's a film that you, you liked this year that I did not called Spring Breakers. Oh yeah. And for me, everything that you're saying about Crank applies to Spring Breakers. And everything that I'm saying about Crank, I think you think Spring Breakers is. Are you crazy? I am not. <laughs> okay, first, okay, we can break this down point by point. Visually, the, 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 there is a true color palette. All the colors of the neon rainbow appear in Spring Breakers, as opposed to this boring brown beige. I think they are equally colorful. Okay, I, I mean, I wish... And I that wish... is Spring Breakers' best quality, is its colorfulness. It's beautiful, it's gorgeous. Um, on top of that, Spring Breakers has an absolutely astounding performance at its center from James Franco as Alien. There's mm-hmm. nobody even close to it's, that. It's a really good performance that does not fit the movie that it's in. What are you talking about? It is the movie. It's, no, it's yes, not. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, and then on top of it's that... It's much more fun than the movie. The movie itself is is moralistic and, and somber and depressing and dumb. Whereas James Franco is, is full of energy and liveliness and, and satire. Well, the whole... Uh, <laughs> I think the movie's full of satire. And, I, you know, I think the pivotal scene in that movie... Um, how can you... How can you say that the, 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 that you know the filmmakers are, aren't having fun with that scene singing the Britney song on the pier with the piano and the girls and the ski masks and the guns? Yeah, I just think we're supposed to think what what idiotic people these are for liking such a, a dumb Britney Spears song. No, you are so this wrong. Is, this is their vision of like the height of, of artistry is stupid Britney Spears. No, that They're is... They're so stupid. Stupid, stupid, stupid. No, it's a... Uh, hey... Okay, let me let me say this. I liked the song, but I like the song too. I I like Britney. I think "Till the World Ends" is one of the best pop songs of the last ten years. Like it's totally freaking awesome. Yeah, I don't think Harmony Corinne likes the song. Okay, well, I mean, do we really want to go down the Spring Break? I I, I think you're completely wrong about this, Sean. I think Spring Breakers is great. I I love the elliptical kind of um, narrative style to it where, where lines would will repeat later with different imagery and um, it kind of cut. Yeah. Cut, it's, it's, it's very, it's very clearly aping Terrence Malick. Yeah. And I, but I think as opposed to, um, I'm trying to think of somebody else that apes Terrence Malick that annoys me. There's somebody, I can't think of the name, um, but but it works in this. I I, I think it, it doesn't. Works. I don't think it, I don't think it's smart enough for the Terrence Malick aesthetic, and I don't think it's fun enough to be entertaining trash. Oh. And I think that James Franco's performance would fit perfectly in the Crank world, but it doesn't fit at all in the Harmony Corinne world. Oh, you are so wrong, Sean. It's it's amazing. It's baffling to me. I mean, I know I know you've gone on record. You're not a fan of his work. You know. Um, and I've I've gone on record. I've been a fan of his work for a long time. I, I really like Julian Donkey Boy, and um, I I was pleased. You know, I liked Mr. Lonely even, um, which has some great performances in it too. And sorry, what, you can't what, meet what, me there. what I appreciate about about Crank is that they're they're willing to just go all the way with the vulgarity. With they really believe in just being absolutely crazy and tasteless and grotesque. Whereas Harmony Corinne is like. 
I'm going to make this thing with these grotesque, vulgar characters, and we can all point and laugh at how dumb they are, or how horrible they are, or we can lament the tragic state of the youth of America, because these are the kinds of things that they believe, and these are their values. Whereas Crank is like, fuck it, let's just have fun. But it's not fun. It is fun. <laughs> I uh, okay. Uh, remind me not to go to Disneyland with you. Okay. <laughs> Absolute downer here. Well, with that, that's our discussion of Crank. <laughs> Let's listen to a, a song from Nico Case, the uh, official sound of the South Puget Sound. This song is Night Still Comes. My brain makes drugs to keep me slow A hilarious joke for some dead pharaoh But now not even the masons know What drug will keep that from coming Smashes all my best laid plans to send And there's always someone to say it's easy for me But I've revenged myself all over myself There's nothing you can say to me You never held me to Ms. Case. Uh, just before we started recording the show, uh, news broke that Peter O'Toole died. So we were planning on not doing any any news this week and just doing our, our top five uh, new-to-us movies. But we got to talk about Peter O'Toole because he's one of the, uh, the great actors of, of film history. Titan. Yeah. And, you know, we're very sad about his, his death. Uh, so what was your favorite Peter O'Toole performance? Uh... You know, I'm tempted as as a big proponent of Ratatouille to say his performance is Anton Ego in there um, because I think that his performance makes that movie, um, especially the most pivotal uh, section in the film. But I'm sorry, I gotta go Lawrence. I mean, <laughs> I mean his performance as T.E. Lawrence in Lawrence of Arabia is it's just I, words cannot describe it. I just blabber on like a it is, it is deservedly considered one of the great film performances of all time like it, it's yeah you pick something up every time you watch it too you know like I've seen Lawrence of Arabia a handful of times now and uh, every time I see it there are more layers to not just um, the film but to his character in particular you know I think he does a really fine job 
yeah, he's he's great in it, and and it is a great movie. But my favorite is in The Lion in Winter, where he plays uh, King Henry the the second, and it's just this this bombastic and 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 energetic performance from this guy who who seems to be a buffoon, but is really much smarter than anyone around him. And it's it's uh, one of my favorite movies, and he's he's just great in it with uh, Catherine Hepburn and Anthony Hopkins and Timothy Dalton. It's great. Yeah, I need to see it. I'm, I'm, I'm a horrible person. You really do. And so maybe that will be one of your uh, favorite older films that you see in 2014. Possibly. So with that uh, very clever segue, we're going to move <laughs> on to our, to our lists here. Uh, these are movies that are, are older than the last couple of years that we watched for the first time. Okay. You, pick, you put a bunch of 2012 movies on your list. I put well, no. I think I think I think I'm I think I'm in the clear here. I have you one 2012 not, movie. You not followed the rules. I didn't know that that was a rule. I thought 2013 was the rule. <laughs> These are films that are older than the most recent year Thank that you. we discovered for the first time. We watched them for the first time in 2013. So what is your number five? And I'd also like to say that the films that we've discussed on the show are, are not included on these lists because some most of my favorite films I've seen this year have actually been thanks to the George Sanders show. That is true. A number of my my favorites uh, we saw on the show as well, like The Red and the White and The Chess Players. and Yeah. Roaring Twenties. Sons of the Desert. Yeah. Great, great stuff. So so all the stuff we've talked about so far this year, not, not counting. So... Number five is my controversial pick because it, it's a 2012 movie. But it's going to make you happy, Sean. Okay. Because it's Hong Sang Su's In Another Country. Okay. <laughs> I will allow it. Um, this is a movie you talked up a lot. And uh, I meant to go see it when it played at the Grand Illusion in Seattle. And, you know, I was there for a week and I just missed the bus on that one. Um, finally caught up to it <clears throat> on DVD. And it's just a great, it's just a sweet little film. Um, it stars Isabel Huppert. Um, and it's actually three kind of three different short vignettes of this character going to um, a hotel in a seaside town, and there's a lifeguard there, and she's you know kind of adrift, and it's sweet and very low key and just charming as all hell. Yeah, I I agree. I I, <laughs> I love that movie. I think it, I think it's totally charming and and fun. And I saw it when it played at the Grand Lucian in 2013. Uh, it's it's a fantastic movie. I totally cheated because that's <laughs> that's how I roll. Uh, and I'm trying. I'm going to try and squeeze as many films into this top five as I possibly can. So you, you give me guff for picking a 2012 movie. Yes, in our 2013 list. That's but then right. you're going to cram like 25 movies down. I am a big fat hypocrite. <laughs> Well, you're big and fat, that's for sure. Uh, my number five pick is uh, uh, films directed by Richard Lester. Uh, I watched his his uh, Musketeers movies, Three Musketeers and Four Musketeers, and also Robin and Marion, the the aged Robin Hood movie with, with Sean Connery and Audrey Hepburn. And I really liked all of them. Like, Robin and Marion was my favorite of them because it's a much different take on the legend. They're, they're older and it's much sadder and they, like, try and engage in these fight sequences, but they get really tired really quickly because they're so old. Uh, but the Musketeers movies are, are terrific as well, especially... Uh, I especially loved Oliver Reed in those movies as... Uh, 
uh, Athos, the, the leader of the Musketeers. And the great thing about them, one of my favorite things that I've seen in any movie from 2013, either old or new or whatever, is the fact that every time Athos is about to engage in a, in a sword fight, he takes off his hat and throws <laughs> it at the enemy. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I think we may have talked about this on the show before. I love the Richard Lester Musketeers movies. I watched them a lot as a, as a kid. Um, they, you know, they inspired me to read the uh, abridged version of Three Musketeers when I was very, very young. Um, and I haven't seen them since. I would like to revisit those because I, I remember that. I remember him throwing his hat and he doesn't he shout? He goes, ah! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My, my mom loves these movies as well. She's been trying to get me to watch them for like 30 years yeah. and, and I finally did and, and she was right. Yeah. So I, sometimes my mom is right. <laughs> What's your number four? <laughs> my number four is also fairly recent. Um, it's David Fincher's The Game, which I just completely missed um, before this year. Um, and it came out recently on a Criterion, which is how I finally caught up with it. Um, and it, what a surprise of a movie that was for me. I David Fincher isn't a, a director that you think of in terms of humor or comedy. There, there can be elements in his movies, but they're very minuscule. But the game is really freaking hilarious. And Seven, I would consider one of the least funny movies ever made. <laughs> exactly. Um, and so I had no idea that the game was so um, ridiculous and uh, sublime. Uh, Michael Douglas plays a uh, you know fat cat playboy you know with no soul who uh, ends up signing up for this rich person's game where basically he gets terrorized until he's lost all of his money and everything. <laughs> tons of horrible things happen to him. And it's just, it's great. It really reminds me of um, Martin Scorsese's After Hours, um, but as like a uh, Bay Area dot com era version of that. And I, it's just, it's just really funny. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't seen that since it came out on VHS. Yeah. 15 years ago, yeah. so that's uh, that's one I should I should watch again sometime. Uh, my number four is uh, movies directed by John Carpenter, <laughs> who is a... Uh, uh, well, you've seen John Carpenter movies before. I have seen John Carpenter movies before. I'd also seen Richard Lester movies before, but the, uh, I've been like trying to work my way through all of the John Carpenter movies, uh, and he's made a lot of, of films, and a lot of great ones, and I actually saw four for the first time this year. Um, the Fog, which was a, a fun little thriller that's uh, kind of gets got a great performance from Adrian Barbeau as the the main uh, woman in the film. Uh, Prince of Darkness, which is a really cool kind of atmospheric horror movie that doesn't have like a lot of jump scares, but it's really really creepy. Uh, in the Mouth of Madness, which uh, is a great uh, kind of twisted meta film with with Sam Neill. Remember when Sam Neill was like a huge Killing star? It. Yeah. He was like in major, you know, blockbuster motion pictures as the lead actor. Yeah, did did that end after Jurassic Park? Uh, in Jurassic Park he's in he's or in 1993 he's in Jurassic Park the piano and in the mouth of madness right all in the, the same year yeah and then, and then he, he just kind of disappeared, disappeared. Yeah. What, whatever happened to Sam Neill <laughs> I don't know give uh, us a call Sam let but, us know you're okay uh, my favorite of the the Carpenter films is was his uh his first feature which is uh Dark Star which kind of grew out is of his uh uh student film days at USC UCLA okay. uh and it's a uh, 
is an ultra low budget sci-fi film about these guys just on the spaceship, just kind of hanging out and they've been out there in space for way too long. And they've all gone kind of insane. And it's uh, it was co-written by the guy who went on to write alien. And there's a little subplot in it. That is pretty much exactly the plot of alien, except it's played more comical with like a, with like a Muppet as the, the alien. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's just, it's so weird, and it, it's so fun, and it's uh, its fantastic. Yeah, I, I really need to see that, especially because uh, I actually saw Alien for the first time this year. And Seriously? <laughs> yeah. I had never seen it before. How had you never seen Alien before? Well, I, there, I can give you a number of reasons. I, I'm not a big horror guy, and, yeah. you know, and, and the Ridley Scott movies I'd seen before that didn't really sell me on checking out his... Uh, it's his good movie. I know it's his good movie, but it, you know you get burned so many times; <laughs> yeah. it's hard to go back. But uh, but I really did like Alien. I'll tell you that much. Um, That's good. Uh, my number three is uh, is a really another sweet low key film. It's called Linda, 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 and it's uh, about this uh, Japanese girl rock band that recruits as their new singer um, a. A visiting student from Korea, and they're going to play this talent show. And um, no movie that I've that I can think of captures what it's like to be in a band better than Linda, Linda, Linda. Not just playing on the stage for people to see and cheer and all that stuff, but like the times in between practices when you're talking about the band and strategizing and um, you know running through the rain with your gear. It's just the sweetest just ass-kickingly rock movie I've seen in a long, long time. It's hard to get, it's hard to get the particulars of music right in a film, you know, that, you know, this year there was that movie, uh, the CBGB movie, you know, which was supposed to, like, you know, have these people playing Debbie Harry and all these things, and and I didn't see it, but clearly you're not going to tap into that kind of enthusiasm of the early punk scene um, in a big-budget movie, but Linda, Linda, Linda is just fantastic. Yeah, I remember when that played the Seattle Film Festival and like reading through the the program and thinking that that was like the one movie that was playing the festival that year that looked good. Yeah. But uh but I still haven't seen it although I've heard nothing but good things oh, about it. Oh, it's so much fun. So. so I've spent, you know, I I made like a big list of all of the movies that I saw this year for the first time in order to compile this. I ended up with like 180 movies or so that I thought were really good that I saw for the first time. And the vast majority of them were Hong Kong movies because no. that's just what I've been watching all year long. And so my, my top three choices are all Hong Kong movies. And, and number three is uh, films from the Hong Kong new wave, which was this kind of movement of directors in the late seventies and early eighties that kind of moved from, from television into film and brought a, a, a kind of realism that Hong Kong films hadn't had before. And uh, the film in particular I want to point out is is not technically a new wave film because uh, its director, Stanley Kwan, uh, came about a couple years later. He's more contemporary with Wong Kar Wai. Uh, but it's called Rouge. It's a ghost movie about a, a woman from the 30s who died. She she killed herself along with her with her lover because they couldn't be together. And she comes back as a ghost in present-day Hong Kong and begins haunting this guy and, and his wife. And uh, they kind of slowly uncover the story of her tragic death while trying to figure out what happened to her lover because they're not united in the afterlife. And uh, 
it's and in you know in in dealing with her story of this this past uh, trauma, the the guy and his girlfriend kind of resolve their romantic issues. So it's it's very sweet, and it's got like a a, a really cool twist at the end that that is also very kind of metacinematic. So it's this it's this like fascinating interplay between like romanticism, but also uh, Hong Kong history and integration of the past, which is one of the major themes of the new wave. So. Stanley Kwan's Rouge. Cool. Well, speaking of the new wave and Wong Kar Wai, um, I finally caught up with uh, Fallen Angels this year, which is, um, I think I've talked about it on the show before. I think I made it a cinema central for something at some point. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a companion piece of sorts to Chungking Express, which we've talked about <laughs> um, almost every week on this show, um, it being one of our favorite films. Um, but Fallen Angels for me is is almost as great as as that movie, and and that's a huge achievement um, to, to to make something you know nearly as good as one of the best movies of the last you know thirty years. Uh, but Fallen Angels is is it's a Wong Kar Wai movie, so if you've seen any of his movies, you kind of know what you're getting into. It's it's very um, poetic and and has this you know very singular style to it, and and Christopher Doyle goes absolutely bonkers with the, the cinematography here and it's just so much fun to watch yeah i love the the fish-eyed lenses oh my takes in the film like the my favorite my favorite scene in the film is is the one with the the girl at the diner and it's this fish-eye shot and, and she's like in in close-up right at the front and it's like distorting her face and then in the background you see i, I think it's like takashi kanashiro comes in and like gets in a fight with a bunch of people yeah there's the tons yeah yeah, yeah yeah kicks major ass uh, it's a very cool movie, you know. There's um, really great soundtrack, and um, it's just it's just great. Yeah, I, I love that movie. <laughs> uh, my number two pick is uh, also Hong Kong. It's going to be a Hong Kong comedy, which is an acquired taste for a lot of people. It's uh, Hong Kong comedy tends to be really broad and kind of slapstick oriented. Uh, the better to appeal to as wide an audience of people who diff- speak different languages as possible, but. Uh, the one that I'm picking is one by the uh, the Hui brothers, who started in in TV in the in the early 1970s, uh, broadcasting in Cantonese, which was unusual at the time in in Hong Kong, even though that's the language that most of the people who lived there spoke. And then they moved into films and made a series of, of wildly successful movies. And uh, it's uh, Michael uh, is the writer and director and the star of the movies, uh, along with his brothers uh, Ricky, who's uh, short and plays. Uh, kind of a, a shy, kind of geeky guy, and Sam, who is uh, kind of the romantic lead of the films. And Sam Hui is also uh, like a pioneer of uh, canto-pop music. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, the the contract is the, the best of the Hui Brothers films I've seen, and it basically takes like the premise of network, like a, a TV network that puts on all of these like ridiculous shows, kind of parodying just how crazy television will get in the future. Let me interject here. Okay. You should have mentioned uh, Weird Al Yankovic's UHF, which is a far better film than Network. That is also true. <laughs> UHF is also better than Network. But uh, what what uh, what we brings to to the premise is this kind of gag construction that harkens back to to silent comedy. It, it's very much like a Harold Lloyd or or a Buster Keaton or a Laurel and Hardy movie set within this kind of TV world where there's kind of these vaudeville style magic gap magic acts. There's 
just fantastic construction of gags that escalate and escalate and escalate to an actual punchline, which is a, a kind of construction comedy that we don't get anymore. It's much more of like, a, you know, like a, a Fairly Brothers, just kind of one joke after another kind of thing or kind of gross out kind of humor. And most Hong Kong humor is more along those lines. But the, the contract in its kind of classical approach to comedy uh, really stood out for me as as a fantastic film. And if you're unsure about Hong Kong comedy, uh, one way that I would recommend getting into it is through a movie like this. If uh, like the kung fu comedies are not your cup of tea, well, that's that's uh, that's a great way of selling it because I don't think it's my cup of tea. Um, but that sounds really really good, so I'm going to put that on my watch list. Yeah. Um, and you know, I I swear to. The listeners at home, we didn't, you know, view each other's lists or anything, but you keep setting me up for my uh, next choice here. Um, speaking of slapstick comedies, um, and particularly, you know, the old the old guard, uh, my number one pick, my favorite movie that I discovered for the first time uh, in 2013 is Harold Lloyd's Safety Last, which is a movie that, as I've said on, on numerous shows, we you know we talked about Laurel and Hardy and Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin this year, but... Um, and I grew up watching all of those things, and I loved him to death, but I, I kind of avoided Harold Lloyd because I knew he wasn't quite as good as Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin, but Safety Last is just as good as Buster Keaton or Charlie Chaplin, and I got to see it at SIF uh, on the big screen, and the, the, the most iconic part of that movie, and justifiably so, is the finale where he scales a building, um, and I mean, <laughs> talk about gag construction... Every floor of the building, there's another pitfall awaiting him, and you can't imagine what's going to come next, and then he just tops it. But the hour before that, with him working in an apartment store trying to make good for his girlfriend, is is just splendid. I mean, it's just great. Yeah, the the, the department store stuff nobody ever talks about, but I I, I, I really I really love yeah love that stuff there's like the scene with him in the office where he's like pretending to be the boss and also like all the women attacking them as has uh there's like a sale and he's like diving through the crowd yeah yeah i i safety last is a great movie. it's just phenomenal uh my number one is uh gonna be johnny toe of course and it's actually my favorite film that i watched in in 2013 that was not released in in 2013 or, or 2012 and that's uh throwdown from 2004 which uh, I loved a lot of Johnny Toe movies, and I watched a lot of them for the first time. But but Throwdown is just, it's so idiosyncratic, and it's so not at all what you expect it to be. It's uh, it's an homage to Akira Kurosawa in that it, it kind of takes the... Uh, the uh, the premise of of Kurosawa's first movie, Senshiro Sagata, about a, a guy who becomes like a judo master... And it, it's set in this in this judo world, and one character even like sings the the theme song of the TV show that was adapted from Kurosawa's movie. But it just kind of assembles this this collection of misfits. There's these uh, this one like aspiring judo guy, one who's uh, who was a former judo champion who was kind of descended into into petty crime and, and alcoholism, and this girl who who wants to make it as a singer who gets a job in this club. And the three of them are constantly fighting. They're trying to steal from each other. They're trying to pick fights. But eventually they all just kind of get along and form a team to free a red balloon from a tree. 
and it's oh sweet. It's just it's a it's a it's a magical movie, and it's something that only Johnny Toe could make. Well, my number six film on the outside looking in was *Romancing in Thin Air*, but I I thought Johnny Toe might make it onto your list, so I, I decided to uh, let him slide. <laughs> I, I will allow it. Okay. Well, with that, that's our top five new to us films from 2013. Um, we're gonna set up. One of my favorite films of the year that I saw that would have made my list easily, easily, um, had we been able to include it, Sammo Hung's The Victim from 1980. So, so here's a clip of uh, one of my favorite songs of the year um, from the band Los Blenders from Mexico. This is Meta y Dinero. Victim, a.k.a. Lightning Kung Fu, uh, film directed by Sammo Hung and starring Sammo Hung from 1980. Uh, it's the story, Sammo Hung plays um, this happy-go-lucky guy in search of a, a master. So he wants to find someone that um, can can beat him in, in Kung Fu, um, and he's having a hard time with it because he can kick major ass. But he ends up running into this guy who we'll call Beardy, because everybody calls him Beardy. Uh, he's like the Chinese Patrick Swayze. That's what I like to think of him as. Okay. <laughs> Patrick Swayze has a beard? He just reminds me, he has this aura of Patrick Swayze-ness to him. Okay, I can kind of see that about the eyes. Yeah, he's got, and he's the got, feathered hair kind he's of got thing. Swayze he's got Swayze eyes. He's got Swayze eyes. They should, Kim Carnes should do a new version of Betty Davis eyes. I was thinking uh, like uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm and Swayze eyes killer. There you go. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> so anyway, uh, Beardy and Sammo Hung kind of battle and and Sam Hung loses and so he wants to be the apprentice. He wants to learn at the foot of uh, Beardy and uh, Beardy doesn't want to have anything to do with it but Sam Hung is very persistent <laughs> um, and it turns out that Beardy and his wife are on the run from his kind of adopted brother who is I call him Sinister Sideburns because that guy is he's pretty sinister. He tries to, in a flashback we see that he tried to uh, rape uh, Beardy's wife on, on her wedding night. Uh, he has tried to kill Beardy on several occasions. Um, anyway, so they're on the run from this guy. Sam Hung joins them. 
Um, but there's kind of some nefarious things afoot uh, that we'll get into here. But anyway, the victim is one of the most joyous romps I've seen uh, on screen in a long, long time. I just absolutely adore this movie. Sean, you watched a lot of movies by Sammo Hung in your Summer of Sammo this year. Where does the victim fall in your line of Sammo Hung features? Uh, it's actually top five. Awesome. Uh, I saw, yeah, like I said, I did like a, a Summer of Sammo thing, and uh, I ended up seeing 13 movies, I think, that he directed. Um, all of them for the first time. I didn't include any on the on the list because we were talking about about Sammo with the with the victim here. But um, yeah, this this one is really good. And and what's distinctive most about about Sammo as a director is it's not just the action scenes which are really good, and it's not just the the comedy which is which is kind of weird and and very and very fun. I think if you're on his wavelength, it works for me. The comedy, <laughs> uh, it's it's the the unpredictable mixture of tones that that exists in pretty much every Sammo Hung movie. Like even the wackiest comedy will have moments of just like extreme, you know, darkness and seriousness. And and that is most definitely the case with the victim. Like the first, you know, 45 minutes or so, first half hour or so when it's just like Sammo following Beardy around and he's like beats up a bunch of naked guys. That's just pure fun. It's just it's just weird and comic. And then and then it takes a dark turn. It takes a really as dark as you turn. learn learn uh, Beardy uh, uh, Brian Lung's uh, backstory with the the story of his wife. And then as as the film comes to its resolution, it actually makes really interesting like thematic points about uh, kind of the ideology of of kung fu movies and of just kind of whole the whole system of kind of master student relationships that that dominates this this culture. So I wonder what you, what you think about about the film thematically. Do you think like there's something to say because the main difference between the victim and and crank to me whereas uh whereas I had a lot of fun with crank even though you did not. I don't think there's a whole lot going on underneath the surface. Not a lot of substance. And I have I have just as much fun with the victim, but there is there is there are unsuspected depths to Sammo Hung. And that's my favorite thing about him is that he's able to do both. He is. It's a, it's a very difficult task to pull off. I mean, this movie really has everything going for it. It's running on, on all cylinders. Um, and, yeah, there's this poignancy to it that you don't... You, you have those flashes of, 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 like you said, this dark, devastating backstory and stuff. And then... You, you get to this point at the end of the movie where you think, okay, they've turned the tables on sinister sideburns. You know, they're going to, they're going to get their come, you know, he's going to get his comeuppance now. Um, but then there's this total left, I mean, left field kind of thing where, um, I don't, I don't know that we want to spoil this one because it's not something that a lot of people have seen. Right. It's and, not, and there's, and there's so many reversals in the last 15 minutes or so that it would be like a shame to give it away. Right. Um, we should stress too. I, I mentioned this at the beginning of the discussion. Um, it's very hard to find the victim, uh, or at least like a, a decent copy of the victim. I saw it um, in one of the last known prints. It might be the last known print in existence. Um, there's a guy that runs the Portland Grindhouse Theater, and he comes up to Seattle once a year and does a kung fu thing here. And he has, I think, he said it was the last known print of the, of this film. Um, and you got it from Scarecrow. Unfortunately, right. The only the only DVD that's out there of it that I know of is uh, is dubbed 
in English, and it's got a Cantonese track, but it's not it's subtitled not in English. So I ended up watching it on on YouTube. It's there in in Cantonese, but the the quality is poor. It's like in that wrong aspect ratio, and it's zoomed in. But yeah, but it, but watch it that way. Yeah, because it's awesome. Yeah, uh, yeah, that that's the way to go. And and I should also another slight caveat. Uh, there are a lot of movies called Lightning Kung Fu. So search <laughs> search under the victim um, yeah. because I made that mistake too. So um, so yeah, this movie does have surprising depth to it. Um, I I don't I'm not as familiar as as you are with not only the work of Sam Hung but kung fu movies in general and and kind of the history of of master student relationships. So. I don't know if I'll have anything to say that's really, you know, worthwhile about that. But I mean, I would love to hear you elaborate on, on what you what you suspect is going on. Well, the uh, the basic conflict in the film comes about because because Beardy, even though he is, you know, the best fighter in in the the little group, he's he's adopted by a kung fu master who is most likely involved in like criminal activities. It's like a, a triad type organization, like you see in like John Woo movies. His rival is his adopted brother, who, because the brother is older, he has to defer to him. And when he marries the girl, the brother decides that he wants the girl instead, but, but, but Beardy won't let him. But he, can't, he won't defend himself, he won't attack his brother, because there's this code of, of filial piety towards his father, and also of respect to his, to his senior in the, in the family and in the organization. Right. So that's what drives all of the drama and all of the tragedy that comes about in this film is his blind devotion to this ideology that says that you have to respect your elders. Right. And uh, a much more pragmatic approach, which is, which is something that, that Samo would advocate throughout his career, is, is getting rid of these kind of outdated codes of honor that just lead to tragedy uh, and just do things you know, with common sense. Right. Well, yeah, and, and there, there are it, it, there's a very pivotal moment in the middle of the movie where Samuel Hung's character calls Beardy on it. You yeah. know, he's like, "You're a coward. You need to, you know, step up for you know yourself and your wife, and you just need to, you know, kick some major ass here." Yeah. Who cares if he's your brother? Right. He's, he's the bad guy. He's a dick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you're right. Um, it it is kind of the that tradition is kind of what uh, you know kickstarts the entire plot of this feature, yeah. Um, and and it and it it does. Well, at the same time, it has like a, a, at one point Samuel pretends to be Dracula. <laughs> I wanted to talk about Dracula um, because and this is actually one of my favorite. I want to give a shout out to Laird, who uh, is kind of in our circles on Letterboxd. Um, he he gave my favorite comment to a review ever after Matt Lynch watched it and he said uh, and I paraphrase here he said just when you think he's about to drop it Dracula shows up and I mean that just sums up this movie is that out of nowhere (laughs) you'll have a scene where they're going to bury a body a a very important body they're going to dump this body in the woods um, <laughs> and, the, and the guys doing it are like, oh man, it's really spooky here or whatever. And you're kind of following along with it and stuff. But nobody watching this movie would, would if you posited at that moment and said, what do you think is about to happen? No one would say, Dracula's about to show up. <laughs> yeah, and the, the, the Dracula joke is, is, uh, 
is actually kind of a new wave influence on the film. And, and Sammo Hung is not generally included with the new wave because he made genre films and he didn't come out of television. But uh, this kind of, uh, of mixing of genres and, and integrating Western influences into traditional uh, Cantonese genres is something that the new wave did a lot. And, and especially with horror and Sammo was a, a, a pioneer in this also in, in 1980, in addition to the victim, he did this movie called an encounters of the spooky kind, which is a, a Kung Fu comedy that has like, like ghosts and zombies. And, and then it takes a very dark turn at the end. But also I think in 1980, uh, Choi Hark uh, released we're going to eat you, which is a, a cannibal Kung Fu <laughs> comedy that's very much influenced by like uh, American 70s like exploitation films like Texas Chainsaw Massacre and stuff, and stuff mm. like that um, but more parodic and, and just kind of crazy and, and <clears throat> hilarious so you know it's it's wildly unusual to see like a, a Dracula show up in a Kung Fu movie but it's not so unusual for a Sammo Hung movie right um, and, and Sammo uh, he's He's a great director, um, and I'm just basing this off of this movie, but um, because he's not only an actor, but he's also, you know, um, you know a very skilled martial artist, um, he films these action scenes better than anybody I can think of. I mean, the final scene, the final showdown, which is like a three-part takedown, is, is just phenomenal filmmaking. Um, he, he does... He, he uses, you know, techniques that, you know, any hack can use, like slow motion and stuff, but he uses them, he punctuates the scene with them, and he never overdoes it. And earlier in the film, he does stuff with sound effects, where he, one of my favorite scenes in the movie is, he, at the very beginning, he's trying to find a master that, you know, will, can beat him in Kung Fu, and, he, and he, he's going to take on this one guy, he kicks that guy's ass, then the guy says, well, you can't beat my master. And so he goes, beats that guy's master. And then the, that master says, well, you can't beat my master. And it's this old, you know, uh, you know, monkish, you know, guy that he's he meets. A, in the, he's a Shaolin abbot. He's, he's yeah. played by uh, Karl Maka, who was, uh, uh, would become a, a really popular comedian in the 1980s. He was one of the co-founders of the Cinema City Studio. Oh, okay. Yeah, and so he, he runs into this guy, and he's very, you know, an austere, you know, monk, serious monk. And... He does this one punch, and there's this, it's this synthesizer, which is like super awesome. Uh, and then Sambo kicks his ass, which is great. But as a filmmaker, he's, he's I think, he, we were talking about Chaplin a couple of weeks ago, and how Chaplin was very generous to the people he worked with. And Sambo Hung does the same thing, where he, I mean, he gives, you know, not only Beardy, but he gives everybody, like, really great spotlights in this movie. Yeah, that's one of the that's one of the the distinguishing elements of, of Samo as a director and star of his own movies is he's very rarely the main character in his films. Not just when he's working with like a superstar like Jackie Chan, and and you know that when Jackie Chan is directing a movie, nobody right. is going to take the spotlight away from him. But right. but Samo is always really generous. Um, even the the film he did the year before this that that begins with actually a very similar plot uh, um, called Knockabout. Uh, that Sammo basically created as a showpiece for Yuan Biao, who is uh, like uh, Jackie Chan. They, they kind of grew up in the same uh, Peking opera company with Sammo, and he wanted, he wanted Yuan to have like this breakthrough role. So he built 
this whole movie knockabout around him. And the actual premise for the film is is when and, and his buddy uh, are following this guy around because they want to become his disciples. Like they've seen his kung fu and it's really good, so they follow him around. And then gradually, we begin to realize that the guy is actually like a super villain, but they don't know it yet. Ah. So actually, I thought that was the direction that the victim was going, but then it it, it took a, really a, a very a very direction. different uh, yeah. a very different turn. And that master in the earlier film is actually played by uh, Lau Kar Wing, who was uh, Lau Kar Lung's brother. Oh, anyway, yeah. And in in watching all of these these kung fu movies this year, I, I came to the realization that uh, stuntmen make the best action movies. Yes, and there's really there's no there can be no doubt about it because they want to show off just the craziest stunts that they can think of. And so, you know, uh, you, you see that with Jackie Chan who started as a stuntman, Samuel Hung started as a stuntman. Even, even, you know, like John Ford began as a stuntman, and you see some of the stunts in his films. Like, they're basically just guys running on horses, but they run really fast. Yeah. Like, the horses in John Ford movies run faster than the horses in Bud Bedeker movies. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's just something about that experience of, of, of being a stuntman, of putting, you know, of risking life and limb for cinema that makes you really want to... to capture it. To, yeah, to, to capture that feeling on film and to, and to instill it in the audience. Yeah, it's it's absolutely true. Let me ask you, if you can pick one, what's your favorite stunt in this movie? I don't know. I I just I find the the fights just mesmerizing. Like yeah. like Beardy is so good, and that, in so that final incredible. fight sequence, like he's he's uh, like his distinguishing characteristic, other than his beard, is that he's just really strong. Like he's a really muscly guy, mm-hmm. and Samo is not at all. <laughs> But a lot of like the other kung fu fighters, they're more kind of sleek in build. Whereas, whereas uh, Brian Lung has yeah, he's he's got he's got he's got, he's got shoulders pants. and he's got biceps. <laughs> yeah, and and, and yeah. just there's just like so much power in his punches, and yet they're they're so fast. Mm-hmm. And uh, just that that showdown with uh, with his brother at the end is is just terrific. But um, I love Samo as a performer because he's this big fat guy but he's so fast it's incredible and he's so athletic and gymnastic it's absolutely incredible that he does these these flips and i mean there's a there's one scene early in the picture where he's he's taking on like a bunch of guys at once and and there's one guy like prone laying on the ground on his back or whatever and samuel like does like a full flip and lands like belly flop on this guy and you're like what how did he do that uh, my favorite, I think, my favorite action moment in this movie is um, Beardy's taking on uh, his his brother's, you know, battalion of guys. And it's very similar. There's a guy that he's knocked to the ground and the guy's lying on his back. And Beardy does a flip and lands on his feet on the guy's stomach. And it's just like, I, I, when we saw it in the theater with like 60 people watching this thing, everybody went, oh, snap! I mean, it was just like... <laughs> Crazy. I mean, just fantastic stuff. Just fantastic. Yeah. Uh, so go watch. Go watch the victim. Yeah. Any any way you can find it, <laughs> yeah. it's worth it. And and go watch some Samuel Hung movies. I know. There's I need so to go many, do that. There's so many good ones. I, I would recommend uh, starting with Wheels on Meals, which is uh, available in a in a nice subtitled edition on Hulu. Uh, it stars uh, Samuel along with uh, Jackie Chan and and Wen Biao. 
and uh, they're in Barcelona and they're solving a crime and they rescue a princess from a castle and it's it's hilarious and it's awesome and they have like the best yellow van ever. <laughs> And the the fights in it are incredible, and it's funny, and and the clothes are just the most hideous clothes you will ever see. (laughs) It's fantastic. Uh, More hideous than Duel of Fists? Much more hideous than Duel of Fists. There was some pretty ugly fashion in Duel of Fists. But it also opens with with a gag that is, is straight out of Buster Keaton. It's, it's, It's entirely visual, and it's just, it's perfect. I gotta check it out. Who are we gonna listen to now, Sean? We're gonna to listen to Kanye because yeah I, yeah I know you're not a fan but you know I tried to think of music that I love from this year and other than uh, sing the uh, hit songs of Sesame Street the one album I heard the most this year was Jesus. I will say I've been a, a Kanye detractor for years and years and years and I still think he's very overrated but I do think there are two or three songs on Jesus that are pretty bitchin. Well, these are. This is one of the ones that you will grudgingly uh, <laughs> allow some uh, some credit to. This is uh, Black Skinhead. This is my favorite. song is 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 the chorus which just it trolls not only history geeks with the the fact that he doesn't know that it was the Spartans in in 300 but but also trolls movie geeks not just the movie 300 but the omen which does not have to do with possession <laughs> the kid in the omen is the antichrist he's not possessed by the antichrist but that's that's of all of the provocations on Jesus and it is an album designed to provoke those are the things that, that, that get me the most. Like the, that's just like a needle jab at me. It's like, I heard that the Spartans, I heard that, uh, he's on his tour for Jesus. He's been, uh, talking about Yodorowsky on stage. Like yeah. I guess that he's been influenced in his stage design or something by Holy Mountain or something. So I got to give him credit for that. That's kind of cool. 
yeah. yeah. <laughs> Talk about somebody who will just throw anything out there yeah. at, you know, whatever. It's just, yeah. He's bonkers. Yes. <laughs> I'll, I'll love him. He's crazy. Uh, so that's our show for this week. Uh, we'll be back next week with our Christmas episode. We're going to watch Meet Me in St. Louis, starring Judy Garland, directed by Vincent Minnelli, and also Arnaud de Plachin's A Christmas Tale from just a few years ago. Our Cinema Central will be Christmas movies, and our person of the week will be none other than the great Judy Garland. Judy, Judy, Judy. Uh, if you're in San Francisco this week, I congratulate you. That's wonderful. December 19th at the Castro Theater, they're doing a double feature um, just in time for Christmas. They're going to be showing Gremlins, which is great, um, and tying it in with the first Lethal Weapon movie, which I haven't seen in probably since it came out in what year was that? 1990? 87. Oh, gosh. Okay. Maybe, maybe I didn't see it in 87 because I would have been six years old, but I, it's been a long time since I saw Lethal Weapon. That's a good movie. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't seen it in a long time either. Uh, if you're in New York, you should head over to the Museum of the Moving Image right now as we are recording this because <laughs> Night of the Hunter is going to start in about 45 minutes uh, as part of their See It Big series. Um, it's continuing throughout the end of the month. And what's playing next week, which maybe you have a little more time to plan for, on Saturday is uh, How Green Was My Valley and Empire of the Sun. But the one uh, you got to go see it big is Black Narcissus playing on Sunday, the the 22nd. Uh, it's Paul and Pressburger's movie about nuns in India who go insane because of sexual repression. It's fantastic. Hooray for sexual repression! And it's actually something we played at uh, at Metro Classics, and, and we kind of uh, hyped up like the cinematography and these, these fantastic artificial sets that, that kind of recreate India. And uh, we had somebody walk out of it uh, after after I did the intro and noted that uh, that the sets were all it was all filmed on a on a studio in England. And guy walked out and said, "You know, I don't want to see. I, I thought this was going to like show actual India." Why would you go? It's still a really beautiful movie. It's like, no, I just wanted to see India. Okay. Can I get a refund? Yeah, so (laughs) it doesn't show actual India. If that's like the decider for you, don't go to the Museum of the Moving Image. But if you want to see a great movie with some great cinematography and some great acting and and the whole shebang, go see Black Narcissus on Sunday. Yeah, do it, do it. You can find us online at thegeorgesandersshow.blogspot.com. We are on Twitter at geosandersshow. And you can email us at thegeorgesandersshow at gmail.com. Closing us out this week will be my third and final pick for a you know, great song of 2013. It was really tempting. It was really tempting to pull out the Melvins here. Um, but I, I didn't want to you know make Sean cry. But this song kind of has... I, at least I think in my my adult brain a connection to the Melvins. This is uh, Shannon and the Clams. Uh, They're from Oakland, California, um, and the, the song is called Ozma, and uh, it's about a cat that died. It's very sad, but uh, there's a Melvins album called Ozma, and inside of it there's a picture of the band and the bassist at that time, Lori, is holding a cat by its tail. Now, Cat's Name is Boris, which is a Melvin song that came on their next album, Bullhead. But I like to think that Shannon, or one of her clams, whoever owned the cat, Ozma, decided to name it after the Melvin's record, where there was a cat on the record. I think that's extremely likely. (laughs) So here's Shannon and the Clams. See you next week.